Tonight, we are in Revelation 13. We've wrapped up chapter 12, and now we're continuing to get into the non-chronological guessing game of where does you know, each chapter fit in the timeline of you know, the nice seals, uh, then the, the trumpets and the vials. I think pretty much all of it at some point for the most part fits somewhere in between the seals and the vials. I just don't know where. Um, like I said, as soon as I get something figured out, there's a, a wall that I hit and it's like, nope, that doesn't make sense either. And so what we're going to see tonight is an evil trinity. As we've said many times, Satan mimics everything God does. And just as God is a trinity, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I know that especially within Messianic communities, sometimes they really don't uh, accept the Trinity because that word is not in the Bible. In all my studies of all of this, I really kind of come down to the idea that it, it's a semantic issue. I believe there is a Trinity. There is a Father, there is a Son, there is a Holy Spirit, but all of them are one. There is no analogy that I can give to you that fully encompasses the truth of that. You know, we are body, soul, and spirit. You are one. Okay, how this all works, I, I can't explain. I don't even, I'm not even going to attempt to explain. But I do believe what the scriptures say. God is one, but there are parts of, you know, the, the separation of that singleness of God. And sometimes they are used interchangeably. The, the powers that God has, God the Father, we see Jesus having. Uh, the things that only God could do, Jesus does. So Jesus is God. Uh, it, it's just, we could do a whole message just on that alone. Maybe someday we will. But anyway, um, Satan is going to imitate that trinity. And you're going to see there is going to be a dragon an anti-God, a beast out of the earth and a beast out of the sea, an anti-Christ and a false prophet or an anti-Holy Spirit. And so we're going to be introduced to that here tonight. We won't get through the whole chapter though. Um, Satan is going to basically wait along the seashore to call up one of his servants, one of his evil trinities, the beast out of the sea tonight. And as we do that, I want you to remember that you're going to see that the sea, oftentimes in Scripture, represents peoples. And so maybe out of a nation, out of this uh, people group, we are going to see a beast come out. Possibly that being the beast out of the sea. Um, although we haven't gotten there in verse 11, you're going to see another beast come up, and that beast is going to come out of the earth. And that is going to be the false prophet. So the Antichrist first, then the false prophet. And you're going to see a hierarchy here. The dragon gives authority to the beast out of the sea. The beast out of the sea is going to give authority to the false prophet or the beast out of the earth. And so there's going to be a hierarchical, um, uh, I guess, structure to this as well. Now, in Daniel 7, it's going to parallel to a lot of what we are going to talk about tonight. We're not going to go and read the whole chapter of Daniel 7, but I would encourage you to do so. I'm going to give you kind of a nutshell version of it. I'm going to revisit it again later. But in Daniel 7, you see the four winds churning up the great sea. And then we see four beasts come up out of that sea. Those four beasts seem to be the exact same beasts that we saw in the uh, statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in that vision, um, as well as others in the book of Daniel. The first one basically looks like a lion, the next one like a bear, the next one like a four-winged leopard, and then the last one more terrifying than all of the others and very different than all the others. So those four different beasts. This fourth one that's very different um, has ten horns, and is going to speak boastfully. And Daniel then watches this vision, these beasts coming out, until 
God takes his seat, his throne, which is what we saw described earlier on in the book of Revelation, which is interesting. And it says in verse 11 and verse 21 of Daniel 7 that this fourth beast, the one greater than all the others or different than all the others, goes and attacks the saints. But his power is going to be taken away when God comes. And then three others, those three other beasts, the thing that fascinates me in Daniel 7 is they remain. They're stripped of their power. They don't have the dominion, but they remain for a season and a time, it says in Daniel. Now, the reason I am going over this is time-wise, it's like, man, it just doesn't seem to line up perfectly with everything else. Because on one hand, I could get a preterist view. This idea that all of this has happened in the past. That Daniel is watching these four beasts come up out of the sea until the Lord comes back and then takes that authority away. But again, he only takes the authority away from the fourth beast, the Antichrist type thing, and then the other three remain. Well, those other three, according to Daniel, were the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Babylonians. So just, it's a little strange so we can look at Daniel and we take a verse or two of those things and we go, oh yeah, here's this beast and there he is in Revelation and it all matches up. But when I take the whole picture of Daniel 7 and every single detail, there are differences. I don't know what to do with that. I'll be honest. But if you go look at those differences, you're going to see it will not fit the preterist view fully. But there are things that don't seem to line up with our futurist view either, in some ways. Maybe those details are taken out of context. I don't know. But we can't just take this verse and then this verse and assume that we've got it all figured out. There's more to this, and I think that's by design. So in verse 24 of Daniel 7, he's going to show ten kings are going to come out of this same kingdom, this, this beast. And then there's an eleventh horn that comes up from the ten, and destroys three of the horns that are there. So you really have eleven, and then three are taken away. And it says that this eleventh horn goes after the saints for three and a half years, in verse 25. And then it says the court is seated. God, like what I, again, like I said, what we see in early on in Revelation, chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 4 and 5, I should say. So anyway, uh, again, lots of things going on. Keep that in mind as we now get into chapter 13. So verse 1, it says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. I already told you this other one comes up out of the sea, speaks boastfully. Okay, against God, I'm going to go after the, after the saints. Here we see in Daniel some of the verses that I was talking about here. And uh, since I described it, I'm just going to leave it up there so that you can kind of see it and see some of the verse references. In Daniel 11, we also see the same kind of thing being talked about again. It says, this king will do as he pleases. This seems to be that little horn. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. So this little horn is going to speak of unheard of things, blaspheme, go after the saints, and he's going to be successful. Very successful until what has been determined takes place. This seems to be the Antichrist. Seems to be the same scenario that we read in Daniel 7. So it also seems to fit what we're reading here in Revelation 13. Is it the same? I think so. However, I don't know if Daniel is, we know clearly he was talking, I mean, you read the rest of Daniel, commentary is on it you can see exactly this bear one of the beasts the bear has three ribs in its mouth we know without a shadow of a doubt that was the greek kingdom and they conquered three other nations 
We, I mean, you can go through and see which kings are being talked about, Alexander the Great, everything. It seems to fit perfectly. My question seems to always come back to be, well, was that only a partial fulfillment, a historical event that was going to foreshadow what things will be like at the end times? And that's where I seem to land to make sense of it being both a dual prophecy or dual fulfillment. Um, the fact that it came out of the fourth kingdom also tells us that it comes out of the Roman kingdom. I don't think there's a scholar that wouldn't say that that fourth beast was the Roman kingdom. History seems to support that. That might suggest then that the Antichrist should come out of the Roman kingdom. We'll come back to that a little bit more later, but many think then the papacy, the office of the Pope, not necessarily a Pope, but a C, the whole people group of Popes. Okay? Very likely could be the case. We're going to get more into that when we get into chapter 16, 17, and 18 of the evidence that the Catholic Church, there's a lot of things that point to that. So, that would be Rome. They are not, I mean, the Vatican is a nation within itself, and it controls countries. Every president, they go, I mean, they control presidential decisions. They control decisions not just for the United States, but for the world. And this power, as we're going to see in Daniel, as in, well, in Revelation, isn't just a power of the United States, a world power for one country. It is a world power for many tongues, peoples, languages. So the ten horns on the beast that John saw, we know are ten kings. So the Bible interprets that. So we know that whatever this is, there's going to be ten kings coming out of this particular kingdom. Uh, Revelation 17 verse 12 defines what those horns are. It says they are kings. The seven heads will be hills. Chapter 17, verse 9 will define that for us as well. So there is no question, no interpretation needed. These are kings and hills. So this beast would have other kings under his control and power. You know, it's kind of like the president of the United States. Everybody knows he's not the president. Everybody knows he has no power. None. He's being controlled by someone else, something else. There would also be an additional seven kings that are going to rule on these seven hills. So I don't think it's as nice and neat, cut and dry, ten kings. You've also got these other seven as well. You've got that 11th that comes up and takes three out. So even that gets muddied up when we really start to dissect this. We've talked or mentioned briefly that Rome has been called the city of seven hills throughout history. Many historians have named it that, called it that. So that Rome fits that, that description perfectly. But like I said, other cities have also been called the city of seven hills too. But the difference being none that exist in the fourth kingdom of Daniel's vision. And because Daniel says this is Rome, ultimately, and Rome is called the city of seven hills, to me that's a check mark as we're on the right track of this being Rome. Blasphemous names on the horns, speaking boastfully. Uh, the Pope today... That's a blasphemy. Okay, he is treated as a god. Uh, the Catholic doctrine, I, we're not going to get into all of it here tonight, but one of the things is, is the Pope is God when it comes to the things that he speaks of theology out of his mouth is supposed to be as if God said it. And that would be blasphemous. Now, that's different than me saying God said, because I have his word. I can speak with that authority, and that's not blasphemy. The difference is, he has the so-called divine power to interpret 
God's word or make any theological decision, even if it's not in God's word, and it's supposed to be as God's saying it. He is without sin uh, when it comes to theology. Now, we can look through the popes of the past. Um, Hunt, Dave Hunt wrote a great book on A Woman Rides the Beast and talks about the popes. And I'm telling you that the history of the papacy is riddled with murder, deceit, and lies. I mean, all kinds of murder, deceit, and lies. I think that when you really get even into the Jesuits today, you will see the same kind of things where some believe the Jesuits are the ones that are running the world today, which would come out of a Roman kingdom. I know when I was in India speaking, um, the, the host that I had had worked in a Jesuit college and had his life threatened. And he said how murderous, evil, demonic they were. Uh, I could go on and on. There's, you just do some study on Jesuits and, and you'll see. But nonetheless, um, boastful, blasphemous uh, is the very foundation of it. Now, as far as these ten horns, we hear a lot of times today about things like the European, European, European Union... Um, you know, the 10 nations there. Uh, it began with 10 nations, but it has 28 today, so it's not, it doesn't seem to fit properly. But a lot of times, I, I remember hearing that a lot, the EU, the 10 nations, that is what we see in Revelation here. Maybe it's connected, I don't know. Some think it's the 10 Muslim nations that are primary here today. And you can see them mentioned here, and I'm going to show you why they're mentioned, but uh, others say that they are kings of the past. The preterists are going to say, well, this all happened in the past, and so these Roman kings and emperors that we had before, that fits what Daniel is saying. I'll touch on that here in a moment. Well, this beast out of the sea and the next one that's going to come out of the earth, again, seems to mimic what we saw with God when he came. Remember when he's coming down, he sets one foot on the sea, one foot on the earth. <coughs> claiming authority. Is that what's going on here? These people are coming to claim authority, one out of the sea, one out of the earth, saying we control the world, all of it. Uh, back in chapter 10, verse 6, is where you can see that where the devil seem or not the devil but God seemed to be claiming ownership and authority over the devil by standing on that. So um, just as we are to give God worship, allegiance through our obedience, when we say in the Lord's Prayer, "Hallowed be Thy name," praying that doesn't hallow God's name. Doing that is what hallows God's name. Our actions, our walk, and our talk is what glorifies God. That is how he is hallowed. That is how he is worshipped. Just going and singing songs like we did here doesn't give God glory unless your heart is in it, unless the action is pure. Well, likewise, this beast is going to receive worship not necessarily by the bowing down to it, but by the following of it. The following of what he says to do. And when we have people telling us to do things that are against God's word, and we follow it, that's as good as, as worship. That is honoring. I was speaking to my daughter this week, one of them, and she was talking just jokingly about putting this poster, and as a joke, every time you see this poster, you know, you got to give it homage, you know, and I said, no, that is not happening in my house. I know you're just joking. I know it's just kind of a, a fun little game you're doing, but I said, you don't give homage to anybody but God, and they were trying to say, well, it's different. It's not like you're worshiping it. Anytime you are giving honor to something like, you don't give homage. I talked about Mordecai, wouldn't even bow down. He wasn't worshiping Haman, but he wouldn't even bow down to him because that was giving homage to somebody that was not God. 
And I think that that is something that we need to do is realize that anytime we give homage or honor to anything other than God, that's idol worship. So, something to think about as we get further into this, the, the obedience aspect. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I think it's the same here with this beast and the dragon. If you see the dragon, you see the Antichrist. You see the Antichrist, you see the false prophet. Okay, they're, they're one and the same. The same authority comes from all. Satan is going to manifest himself in many different ways, just as God does. God manifests himself through the Word, through the Holy Spirit, through his creation. His creation speaks of him. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying creation is God. Okay, that's idol worship. What I'm saying is, is that he can manifest himself in many different ways. Satan is going to do the same thing. Um, the dragon here has seven heads, seven crowns, and then the beast that comes out of the sea has ten horns and crowns. So a slight difference between those two. So just something else to take note of. Well, anyway, I'm going to give you a little bit of a preterist understanding of what we're going to read to kind of have it in your mind as we read through the rest of this revelation. I'm going to revisit this preterist view, show you why it doesn't really fit in my mind fully. But bottom line is many people in the preterist view are going to say what we're reading here in Revelation 13 has to do with Nero. There were ten main Roman kings, em emperors, I'll say, and the sixth one was Nero. Nero was the one that is most noteworthy for the persecution of the Christians and so on. Um, when Nero came, it is said that he assassinated three others in order for him to become emperor. So just as this little horn comes up, three horns are broken off, in order for him to be there. So they say that was being fulfilled in around 65 AD. Some say uh, another interpretation, Britain, Armenia, Armenia and Syria, uh, they rebelled and were put down by him. So three different countries that were put down. We know that Nero was very pompous and arrogant. He also was blasphemous. He persecuted the Christians for three and a half years, believe it or not, starting in November of AD 64, and his death when he committed suicide in AD 68, 42 months, three and a half years. So they say this is a perfect fit to what we read in Revelation. Now one of the problems is, I don't think Revelation was written until after this. However, there are those who say it was. So with their to, to be fair to their... Um, description, you can see where you go, wow, yeah, that fits. I think it does fit, but only as a foreshadowing, one of many foreshadowings of what is to come. You're going to see other preterist views that will attach different things here as well, saying it's not cut and dry either. Um, we see that Rome, after he committed suicide, really was weakened in its strength. Uh, everybody thought it was going to die. The temple then was destroyed in 70 A.D. And then three others remain without uh, domain because Christ's dominion on the earth. So you have, what I, what I mean by that is Nero, after he dies, you got these other ones that come about. And they don't really have the same power. They eventually lose their power. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Christian message, had gone out into the world and they couldn't fight against Christianity. That is interpreted as what we saw in Daniel. Uh, in one of the visions, you know, this great rock cut out of a mountain comes and hits the feet and destroys the kingdom, and then that grows and becomes the kingdom of God. We see in Daniel 7 that, you know, it's God until God comes and takes his throne and takes his dominion. So they see it as because Jesus came, the dominion of Rome was destroyed. Okay, you can read into that. Hosea 3, or 13, verses 7 and 8 is a very interesting verse. This is dealing with the unfaithfulness of Israel, that there was going to be judgment put upon them. 
And this is what it says. Therefore I will put unto them as a lion, as a leopard by the way will I observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will rend the call of their heart. And there, will be, there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. God's saying, you didn't follow me, so I'm going to bring judgment. And what did the judgment come by? A lion, a leopard, and a bear. The exact same animals we see in Daniel 7 in the vision. The very same thing that seems to be Revelation 13. Anyway, there's a number of problems that I see with this. Like I said, one of them was the time of Nero worse than any other time that would ever come upon the earth? Even the Holocaust? I don't think so. I know it was bad, but Matthew 24 says that when this king comes, it's going to be, unless this time was cut short, no one would survive, and it's going to be worse than any, the distress upon the world, worse than any that ever has been or will be. I don't see how Nero fits that. That's one of the problems. The three that were left, the three kingdoms, Babylon, the Medes, and the Persians, and the Greeks. Well, technically in some senses, you could say, even though we don't have emperors, Rome is still here with the Vatican. The little horn, when you read in Daniel 7, it seems to come up after the ten. You see ten horns, and then one comes up and knocks three out. He comes after the three horns. Well, Nero is coming in the middle of this, not after. So that doesn't seem to really you know, be a nice, neat fit. Um, others say that the ten horns are the ten seats of the ten provinces of the Senate that was run under Rome. Um, others say the little horn was Flavius Vespasian. Uh, three horns were subdued by the little horn. In verse 24, it refers to Galbo, Otho, or Otho, and Vitalius. But Vespasian put down only Vitalius, not the other two. So that doesn't seem to fit either. These are just different preterist views that are out there of how these ten kings, getting them to fit in the past. Um, we see that Vespasian had no hand in the fall of the other two, Galbo or Otho. Otho, whatever his name is. So that doesn't seem to fit. One preterist article, and this is one of the things that I really uh, have a problem with with a preterist view, most of them are very anti-Semitic. Let me just read for you what one of the articles said uh, from a preterist view. He said, if the saints in verse 25 are the Jews, then the Jews receive the kingdom in verse 27. But this is absurd. The Jews were not the saints in the latter half of the first century. They were the enemy and Antichrist. It is the church that received the kingdom and dominion, not the Jews. The Jews were destroyed. So in order for this to fit and going after the saints and all of that, you have to say the Christian church has replaced the Jews. Okay, That is unscriptural. You cannot give me a verse that ever says that. As a matter of fact, I can give you several that say the opposite. We've gone over that before. So that's one of the problems that I have. Um, in the space of one year and 22 days, there were four emperors that came to the throne, Galbo, Otho, Vitalius, and Vespasian. The history of this time was unprecedented in the world. Annals and clearly marked Christ's coming in judgment against the persecutors of his church, this article said. So, after you've got Nero, you've got to have four other kings. Here they are, and it says it was unprecedented in Roman history. They were weakened, and it just eventually they were going to receive the death blow all because of Christ's coming. You know, 30, 40 years earlier, him on the cross. The kingdom of God had come. So... Um, just some ideas, things to think about. But like I said, I get the preterist idea, but it doesn't fit perfectly. There's still many problems with it. That's why I think it's only a foreshadowing. Just this is a thought, and I don't know. The article that I was reading also said all other kingdoms were monarchies. Rome alone was the republic. 
And I thought, you know, that's interesting. Because what are we? A republic. Okay. Some think Babylon is the United States today. There's a lot of things that fit into that. And I don't know if there's anything to that, but I thought it is interesting. Rome being the only republic, Rome certainly being the fourth beast, and us today being a republic. I don't know. It may mean nothing, but something to think about. We're, yeah, I mean, our country is a very Roman Babylonian foundation, a mix of all of those things, which is kind of interesting. If Rome goes away, but yet the other three are remain but lose their power, you see those other three influences in the United States. It's not like they're a power. We're a power unto our own means, but nonetheless, they remain. And so that was just kind of one of my thoughts that, I, like I said, it may not mean anything, but it's just something that I store in the back of my head. Psalm 83, verse 2 says, For behold, your enemies make a tumult. Those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. So here you have the enemies of Israel saying, We're going to destroy you. We don't want you to be remembered anymore. Verse 5, for they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. They're uniting against Israel. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagrites, Gebel, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. Selah. So what's fascinating about this to me is this hasn't been fulfilled yet. And here we see a confederacy, the enemies of Israel coming against them. And note, they're all Islamic nations. So this is why some think these ten kings could be Islamic nations. There was a guy named Walid Shubat, who I found very fascinating. And he really believes the Antichrist is going to be Islamic. Um, in all my research of what I did with his stuff, I mean, from seven hills to just prophecies that we see, foreshadowings even, I think it's a very real possibility that in some way uh, the Muslim religion is going to be connected to either the Antichrist or the false prophet. I find it interesting that the Catholic Church you know, the Pope, earlier Pope, I've got a picture of him kissing the Quran. Uh, we know that they are very friendly with Islam. There is a connection and a melding together of Catholicism and Islamic nations. And Judaism. There is. There is as well, yeah. yeah he, with the Jews. Now again, as I've said many times, many of the Jews, which I would say God would not call Jews, but uh, as I've mentioned before, is outright satanic. Some of the orthodox Judaism of today is outright Satanism. So here's just kind of a four beast comparison in, in Daniel. I'm not going to stick here very long, but there are four separate visions that we see in the book of Daniel. Again, f the four beasts, Babylon, the Mede Medes and Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. This, it starts out with the statue here on the left. And then we see out of the mountain a huge stone is cut, not by human hands, which is another interesting thing, is that what destroys this statue to set up the kingdom of God is not going to be by human hands. And we'll come back to that later maybe. But um, once this was done, uh, Jesus, the kingdom of God, grows, becomes an everlasting kingdom. So Daniel has the same story, but with animals, the same, you know, kingdoms, but with animals than in chapter 7. And that's what you see there in the middle. The lion with wings, uh, which was Babylon. That's even the symbol of Babylon. That when in archaeology we have found the winged lion as a symbol, their national emblem. Then the bear with three ribs, uh, the Medes and the Persians. Uh, then the leopard that had four wings, uh, Alexander the Great in the Greek kingdom, and then Rome with the ten horns. So again, it's interesting that 
almost every scholar kind of sees this as leading up to Christ. And then shortly after Christ, the Roman kingdom being gone. But then the kingdom of God should have come. People say, well, it did when Jesus came. Well, as we looked at earlier, Jesus even says here in Revelation chapter 11, not until he comes back again will the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our God. So this is still the kingdom of this world. Yes, God has authority. Yes, he has you know, dominion. Yes, Satan now stands condemned, but it's not over. And so it just doesn't seem to fit that by 65, 70 A.D., all of the plan of salvation pretty much took place. There's, there's more to it. Yes, the Roman kings were blasphemous, as we said. Uh, many of them you know, were basically called God. Um, Domitian, Antiochus Epiphanes, even in the Greeks, the, those kind of things. Um, in chapter 17 of Revelation, we're going to see a scarlet beast that's going to be covered with blasphemous names. Uh, verse 3, having ten horns and seven heads. Verse 7, therefore the beast that comes out of the sea here in Revelation 13 is going to be seen again in Revelation 17. So ideally, if we had time, you'd want to read Revelation 13 and 17. So make that your homework to kind of put these two things together. It seems that this beast out of the sea, the Antichrist, is going to be political in nature. And then the false prophet, the beast out of the earth, is going to be religious in nature. All right. Well, Daniel 11. Again, 7, 8, 11 of Daniel. Just even to read from 7 through 11 in, in Daniel would be good. It says, So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. So notice that. He's showing regard for those who are against God, that forsake the holy covenant. What covenant is this? Well, could be the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant he gave with Jacob. Whatever it is, guess what? That's the same covenant that applies to us today. Okay, the Abrahamic covenant included the gospel. They just didn't get to see it. They were longing for it to come. But anyway, forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So they're going to come and destroy the temple, set up an abomination that causes desolation. Antiochus Epiphanes did that in 164 B.C. But guess what? It wasn't fulfilled yet because Jesus comes and says in Matthew 24, So, when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And then, we see about 40 years later, Titus comes in, does that, sets up an abomination that causes desolation in the temple. So the preterists say, see, it was fulfilled. Or, is it just like Antiochus? Another partial fulfillment leading to what end times is going to be like. I think it's that. Verse 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant, ungodly people, he shall corrupt with flattery. Okay? They might look like Christians on the outside, but they're still not following the covenant. <coughs> but the people who know their God, the obedient ones, the ones who actually worship God, he says they shall be strong and carry out great exploits. We see that with Antiochus prior to this. No question about that. The whole Hasmoneans refused to be Hellenized, refused to take on the Greek culture, and stood up for the truth of God's word. And a few little farmers defeated the whole army. That's probably what we'll be talking about here in a couple of weeks, um, is we're going to do some Hanukkah messages. It says, those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. They're going to slip in, spies. We see that's exactly what happened with the Hasmoneans 
you know, uh, the time of the Maccabean revolt. We see in Rome some of that, maybe not as clearly, of people standing up against it. We saw in Rome in 70 AD, rather than giving great strength, they all fled to the hills. What Matthew 24 would tell them to do. Verse 35, some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Okay, so they're going to die. Some are going to die, but it's not the end yet. We saw that in Revelation too. You know, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? Well, just hang on for a little while until more die like you did. Then I'm going to come and bring revenge and avenge your blood. So... Anyway, um, it looks to me like the Antichrist is going to have a pretty easy job of convincing those who are free in Christ to disobey. Ah, oh, you're free in Christ. It's okay. Just go ahead and bow down to him. Don't worry. I know you don't mean it in your heart. Oh, it's okay to be free in Christ. I, I, listen, this movie... Listen, you're free in Christ. I know there's sexual nudity on it and, and God's name is blaspheme, but it's okay. You're free in Christ. Okay. He's got an easy job ahead of him. You contrast that to what it says in Matthew 17 or 5:17, which I'm going to show you here on this next slide. But just keep that in mind. It doesn't seem that what we're seeing talking about here in Daniel 11, again, talking, I think, end times, as well as the foreshadowing historical events prior to the end times, that it wasn't the godly versus the pagans. It was the godly versus the ungodly that pretend to be godly. The whitewashed walls. That's exactly what happened in the time of Antiochus for the whole story of the Maccabeans and the revolts of Hanukkah. You had Jason, who was a priest who took on a Greek name, paid his way to get in to be a priest. You had all kinds of people doing that. You had all kinds of people taking upon the Greek culture so that they wouldn't get in trouble. And then you had those who stood and said, no, I stand on the truth of God's word. I will not compromise. The godly versus the compromised. The conservative Christians against the progressive Christians of today. We're being set up for the same pattern that we saw throughout all these other you know, prior historical events. So, very important to notice that. Um... You know, I, I like the fact here that discerning believers should not expect to be free from harm. That it's okay. I think we spend so much time figuring out how to be safe or who the Antichrist is. But if you really look at this, the focus on this isn't about who this person is as much as it is who you are who the people of God are. But, okay, though people who understand, the righteous, they stand. What is your role in end times? Revelation, I think, in many ways is applicable to any time of history. It was very applicable to those people living in 70 AD. They saw this as fulfilling what was going to happen. Whether it was or not, the time really didn't matter. What mattered was, how did the people who believed stand? I feel like we're close to the end times, but what if we've got another 150 years? Really doesn't matter. What matters is, how are you standing now? That's the focus. And so rather than reading the book of Revelation, trying to make sure that we get all the details figured out as far as who is what and when is when, that maybe it should be, where am I at? Because everybody has a time of revelation that they're living through. Everybody, as we're going to talk about later, has a mark of the beast moment. Every single one of you. And so the goal is to see how does this affect you? 
How, how, what's your role in end times? More than the who is who. Matthew 5.17, as I said, I was going to show you, contrast that to these other compromisers. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law, till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, you're free in Christ shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of God. Notice that contrast. Those who do versus those who don't. And by the way, this is Jesus' teaching here. Verse 2. Let's go back here. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Notice the same that we saw in Daniel 7, the same picture is given here. The lion, the leopard, the bear, exact same ones. Now the fourth beast has this other qualities though. And we'll see these you know, other things later, but just like I said, there's, there's four, not just three here. So one of the things that was interesting about Rome is that it boasted about its ability to meld other cultures into its own. And you look at America, our republic, that's what we kind of have boasting about now too. We accept everybody, everything, anything goes, let alone just, you know, the Roman culture, the Babylonian culture, all of those things that are there. But um, Satan here is the one that, that, the dragon is the one that gives the Antichrist his power and throne. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So Satan's the one in charge. The Antichrist gets that power. But what's fascinating is you're going to see in chapter 16, verse 10, the fifth bold judgment is poured out on the beast and his throne. So we know what the end is going to be for this. Um, another interesting thing is the four beasts of Daniel 7. When you add up all the heads and the horns, it's seven heads and ten horns. just like what we see in Revelation. Because the lion that comes out has one head, the bear has one head, the terrible beast has four heads, and then the beast had ten horns. So when you add all of those up, even though the numbers are different in Daniel, when you add them up, they equal what we see here in the end in Revelation. So just another little tidbit. You see some timing issues here in Daniel. The fourth one had ten horns, the mouth that spoke boastfully during the time of, his, of this beast's reign. God's judgment seat was seen in heaven as a courtroom is seated. And so when the Antichrist is there, you're going to see them coming and uh, uh, God taking his throne, much of like what we saw earlier. It seems a little bit out of whack from Revelation unless there are gaps here in Daniel 7. So anyway. Verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? One of his heads... Mortally wounded. Now remember, heads, Revelation 17 tells us, are kings and hills. So one of these kings, under the control of the beast, is going to have a near-fatal wound. But he's going to be healed at the astonishment of the nations. Kind of brings you to mind Genesis 3.15, where Satan would have his head crushed by Christ. But this head is going to seem to have a mortal wound. The preterists view this as Rome 
seem to be dead, dying, and we're going to have one king that comes up and kind of revives it, and it's unexpected. Historians talk about that. I'll give you a couple of examples, but anyway. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. So not the beast itself initially, but the dragon gets the glory. They worship the beast as well, though, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 says, He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Who is like God? Remember Elijah? Who is like God? They start saying on Mount Carmel. But now they're saying that about this beast, worshiping him as God. Exodus 15, 11, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? See the, the, the mimicking of God here again? Um, some say Nero. Nero committed suicide after Nero. Uh, another guy came back and people were saying it was Nero resurrected. Well, it wasn't Nero resurrected. Just because somebody you know, was claiming to be Nero resurrected doesn't mean it is. So I think that's a weak argument. Um, verse, chapter 17, verse 8 said, Only the unbelievers are going to be astonished at this as well. I kind of went over this, so real quickly, just note the hierarchy thing. The dragon gives it to the beast of the sea, gives the authority to the beast out of the earth. Um, and then the, the land beast basically seems to announce the Antichrist as Messiah uh, to, to demand worship of him. Revelation 13, verse 5, getting close to the end here, it says, He was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemes. blasphemies. He was given authority to continue for 42 months, three and a half years, basically. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle. Now, remember, there is the temple, but remember, now we are the temple. In, uh, so, in a sense, it could be you. I don't know. And those who dwell in heaven. So, the tabernacle and those in heaven. So, maybe the saints that are alive and the saints that are dead. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So God allows him to have some victories, to have this authority. But again, this authority isn't just over one country. It is over every tribe, tongue, and nation. There is going to be some, it seems, Gentile authority. Now, some people think the Antichrist could be a Jew. I don't think so. That's something that's come out more in recent times, I think, but it doesn't fit. First of all, we see the fourth beast is Rome. Second of all, we see that it's the Bible here in Revelation 11, 2, exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They are the ones that are going to trample on the holy city for 42 months. There is a rabbi right now in Israel who some are claiming could be the Antichrist because he is being almost worshipped by many different sects of Judaism, even the Orthodox. They're kissing his ring. They're doing all kinds of things. It goes on here. In Revelation, it says, He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes, God. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Just like that mountain, a rock came out, it's destroyed, but not by human hands. That's what Daniel 8.25 says. Nero killed himself. If Christianity and whatnot, it was Nero killing himself. It didn't seem to be by the hand of God, but by the hand of Nero. I think another problem with that. So, um, the Antichrist went to make war against the saints, just as the dragon did back in chapter 12, verse 17. Uh, again, showing a common unity, a common theme between this evil trinity the subordinate role of the Antichrist and the dragon as well. Jesus had a subordinate role, even though he was full God, full man. He said, I only do what God tells me to do. 
right? So you have that same type of mimicry. One of the things in chapter 13, verse 5, that there's a difference that is worth noting. The majority of the translations say something differently here. In verse 5, it says he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He was given authority to continue for 42 months. The idea here, it says given authority to continue. It doesn't say to make war. That's New King James in King James. Most of the translations will say authority to make war for 42 months. This is where that chiastic structure can be helpful because in Revelation 13, 1 uh, through 4a, that goes with Revelation 13, 7, and 8, and we see that it is given authority. Then Revelation 13, 4 and 13, 7, as your chiastic structure brings you to a focal point, Verse 5 is a focal point, and it seems to suggest that he was granted to make war. And so I think that the proper translation is not just given authority, but authority to make war. So just to help maybe clarify that. Like I said, um, there's historical records that talk about Rome dying, and then by, to everybody's surprise, comes back to power. That is what this mortal wound is viewed as by the preterists. Uh, I just don't, don't see it fitting out that way. Um, but that's, that's how the preterists will identify it. Verse 8, I think I just have two or three slides left here. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. So to worship the beasts means to have your name taken out of the book of life, to be blotted out. Now here, it's, see, that's what we saw earlier in Revelation. Here it says whose names have not been written in the book of life. It almost seems to say like never ever was there. Okay, so that's a whole argument we could talk about before, but I want to focus on this from the foundation of the world. This plan has been laid out. Matthew 25 says that the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Or we see in Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. So the point being, though, is if you worship the beast, you take his number, his name, you will go to hell. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. People always ask, and we'll talk about it more when we get there, can you accidentally take the mark of the beast? I would say no. I don't think there is going to be an accidental taking of it. It is a choice. We'll deal with that later. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Basically saying this, guys, if you have, this is again your choice. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Or Ezekiel 12, 2, they have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear. He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. If you, are, if you confess to be a Christian and you're walking after him, you're doing what he says, that's what opens your ears. It isn't cleaning the wax out. It is following, a choice to walk with God, to follow after him. Last slide, verse 10. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Basically he's saying life is going to go on. Those who hate me, they're going to die. You know, if they killed by the sword, they're going to be killed by the sword. We see the similar things here in Jeremiah 15 too. Jeremiah showed this. If they ask you, where shall we go? Tell them, this is what the Lord says. Those destined for death to death. Those for the sword to the sword. Those for starvation to starvation. Those to captivity to captivity. Or Jeremiah 43:11, He will come and attack Egypt, bringing death to those destined for death, captivity to those destined for captivity, and the sword to those destined for the sword. So, Hebrews 6.12 says, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. You want to inherit life? 
You live for life, you get life. You live by the sword, you get the sword. Basically saying, what you reap is what you're going to sow. And so, verse 10 shows that hearing God's word is the only way that you're going to find protection. And to hear God's word doesn't mean just go sit in your button in the pew. It means do what it says. So the events of this seven-year period are going to be terrible. I don't doubt that. When it is, I don't know. But Jesus said this, For then there will be a great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So I don't see how Nero fits this, that it was the worst time ever. But as Christians, I can tell you this, it's not a time to be afraid of, but it is definitely a time to prepare for. By reading God's word, by walking in his word, following his commandments. Ephesians puts it this way, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now get this. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when that day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your guard. You've got to be prepared now. Because if you're not prepared, preparing now, when the day comes, you will not be able to stand guard. So keep that in mind. We've been introduced to the first beast. We'll get to the second beast here next week.